Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what are the issues with the Mother and Baby Home Report? If everybody is responsible, is anybody responsible? If everyone is to blame, is there anyone to blame? If somebody has no choice in something, are they being forced into it? If someone tells you something has happened, is that evidence of it happening? The report of the Mother and Baby Home Commission is almost 3,000 pages long, so survivors, advocacy groups and academics are still poring over it. But many have already raised these questions and concerns about some of its approaches and findings. Where have they come across issues and what aspects of the report could be in dispute? This report and its recommendations are not yesterday's news yet, so on the explainer today are two of our own reporters, Conal Thomas and Orla Ryan, who have been dissecting it in detail, as well as Associate Professor at the Department of History in the University of Limerick, Kira Bratnock, who will talk us through some issues that have arisen since publication. Thanks all for joining us. Orla, I'm going to start with you, and sorry for this very big question, but can you give us a general overview of the report and its main findings? Yeah, so the Commission was set up in 2015 to examine the experiences of women and children who lived in 14 mother and baby homes and four county homes between 1922 and 1998. The report, spanning 2,865 pages, was published last week. About 56,000 women and girls and about 57,000 children passed through the 18 institutions investigated by the Commission. And the Commission said it's likely there were a further 25,000 women and a larger number of children in the county homes which were not investigated. The report noted that mother and baby homes were not just an Irish phenomenon, but the proportion of women and girls who were admitted to the institutions in the 20th century was probably the highest in the world. In terms of what the report itself found, it confirmed that about 9,000 children died in the 18 institutions under investigation. That's about a 15% mortality rate, almost twice as high as the national average. And in quite a damning line, the report itself notes that in the years before 1960, mother and baby homes did not save the lives of illegitimate children. In fact, they appear to have significantly reduced their prospects of survival. The very high mortality rates were known to local and national authorities at the time and were recorded in official publications. Even though we've been hearing these figures for a couple of weeks now, just the scale, they're so staggering, aren't they? Just to hear, uh, even though we're now familiar with them. They really are. I mean, to hear that 9,000 children had died, I suppose in some ways was not surprising, but it was still very shocking and, and really resonated with people. In terms of some of the report's other findings, it confirmed that infant human remains were located during an excavation at Sean Ross Abbey in Ross Cray in County Tipperary. However, there was a notable difference between the remains found here and those that were located in Tume a few years ago. These remains appear to have been buried in coffins, unlike at the site of the former Bon Secures home in Tume, where bones were found in a disused septic tank. Also in the report, the Commission stated that there was no evidence that women were forced to enter mother and baby homes by the church or state authorities. The report noted that most women had no alternative as they were often thrown out by their families and had no money of their own. This finding came in for very sharp criticism from survivors who say the women's testimonies in the report itself contradict this finding. And I've spoken to several survivors in the last week and they've shared stories that indicate the very opposite. One woman spoke about getting as far as England and a nun going over there to bring her back so she'd have her baby in Ireland. Such was the fear that she might adopt the baby to a non-Catholic family. The report also found a lack of evidence of physical abuse and discrimination against people in the institutions. Again, this was disputed by survivors and their testimonies contradicted this. 
Yeah, we'll get into um, that, Kira, with you in a bit. But just to stick to the report for a second, because we a lot of what we've talked about in the last few weeks have been that some of this, some of what's in the report is stuff that we actually did know as a society. We needed to get it confirmed. We needed to put it on record. But people have been focusing on the what next, what actions are going to happen. Conal, what did the report actually recommend? Yeah, Shanid, the report made a number of recommendations under, I suppose, a series series of um, headings and important topics. I mean, we'll just start for a second with records. Um, the report basically said that adopted people and people who are adopted from the mother and baby homes should have a right to their birth certificate and birth information and, and recommended that the government put in place or rather said a mechanism could be put in place to allow a birth mother to argue for privacy rights. It also said that there should be a central repository of the records of institutions so that information be obtained from one place. Um, in terms of redress, um, the, the Commission recommended firstly that I suppose redress could be in the form of financial or could be in the form of enhanced services. So it said that enhanced benefits and increased access to medical cards is something that should be considered. But it's been one of the key lines that people have been um, looking at the last few weeks. Is the Commission said that any financial redress is, is really a matter for government. So it said that, you know, and, and to follow on from that, it said some groups in similar situations have received financial redress. The state should not discriminate against them. Um, this could be women who were in um, um, Magdalene Laundries, for instance. Uh, it also said that women who worked outside the institutions where they pay and women in the tomb home who had to care for the mothers of children um, and those who looked after other residents in county homes should also be compensated, as well as women who spent lengthy periods in these homes um, should also be considered for redress. The Commission also said um, that a specific fund could also be set up for current disadvantaged children. And then in terms of memorials, it recommended that a national memorial and a number of local memorials could be set up. And again, I, I use the word could because it didn't it wasn't as strong as perhaps some people want to be saying this should be done, because this is now, I suppose, firmly over to the government. In addition, I suppose the Commission looked at hundreds of thousands of documents under a number of different headings. We're, we're talking about documents from, you know, um, the HSC, the local health boards, um, local authorities, religious institutions. And the, the Commission basically said that there should now be uh, a central repository and that a, an, an archivist should be put together to, to bring all these documents together um, in order to access them in the coming years. Yeah. Is there a prioritisation of these recommendations, Conal? Like what's the likelihood of these actually happening, being implemented and on what timeline? Well, that's the big question. I suppose the government following the reports on the day it was released um, set in an action plan spanning eight teams. I mean, looking at it, it, it seems to be very kind of buzzwordy and there doesn't really seem to be a huge amount of detail. And it talks about a survivor led approach. It talks about an action plan, etc. But if we just drill down to the detail, I suppose the government has made about 22, I suppose, action points or recommendations that it plans to pursue now. Um, one of these, and I suppose perhaps the most important one coming up is the information and tracing legislation which we've heard about for many months now so this will this is going to be basically allow people to access um access historic information contained in the records it's and the government now want to provide a legislative basis to support the exchange of this information on a consent base between individuals and their birth families that's something that the Taoiseach and Minister Rodrigo Gorman have both said they're very much on the same page and that is going to be a priority now for the government and it's due I suppose to come before TDs in March or April 
as well as that, I suppose, and this is the interesting thing, if we look at the, the recommendations from the government, the action points, one of them was the apology. We've, we've heard the apology, although some survivors have said they would have rather waited for everyone to absorb the report, give some feedback before the Taoiseach uh, apologised. In any case, there's also a number of other um, recommendations that the government is now committed um, to, and, and some of them follow on, I suppose, from the Commission's own recommendations, such as the Central Repository for Institutional Records, a National Memorial, public access to original state files. But if we look down the list, I think this is quite interesting. As I say, there's 22 action points or recommendations the government's going to follow on from. Financial recognition, or what's known as redress, is only 20 on that list. So I don't mean to imply that it's not high up on the, the government's um, priority list, but the government has said it's committed to providing a bespoke ex gratia restored recognition scheme to provide financial recognition. This is obviously something that's going to have to be worked out over many months, but I, w I suppose it might be worth remembering back to the Magdalene redress scheme and the, the, all the issues that women had with that. I mean, about 1.1 billion euro has been paid out in that scheme to date. So that, so that just gives you a scale of what we're looking at. But also we've heard over many years women having difficulty accessing redress in that regard. So this is something I suppose the government's going to have to contend with and battle with over the coming months to, to try and design this in, as, as they say, a survivor-led um, approach. Yeah, and with the report being you know, almost 3000 pages long, Orla, and with the recommendations being so varied um, and so many, what has the reaction of survivors been to all of this? Well, as you've mentioned, the report is very long, so survivors are still making their way through it. But based off the main findings and, and recommendations, survivors have said they're quite angry and hurt by a lot of the findings. In general, though, they've said they're not surprised. Some people I've spoken to in the last week point out that the state has ignored them and let them down for decades. So why would the report be any different? In contrast to some of the findings, many women have spoken about being forced into the homes and having their babies taken against them, again, taken from them against their will. One woman told the journal that a nun in an institution physically pulled her daughter from her arms, both my baby and I screaming. And another spoke of still having nightmares about her child being taken decades later. In terms of adoption, some women said they had to sign consent forms under duress or were told to sign the form under a fake name. In some cases, signatures were forged, while in other circumstances, consent was never sought in the first place. And survivors have said the state apology, you know, while welcome to some degree, as Connell mentioned, some of them wanted it delayed. But now that it's out there, they've said it will be pointless unless the government follows through on the report's recommendations and as quickly as possible. For many survivors and their children, the most important step the government can take is to introduce the long promise tracing and information legislation, which, as Connell mentioned, is due to be debated in the Iraq this this year. And people have said this must be signed into law and as quickly as possible. Kira, we're just going to backtrack a little bit from there and ask you about what the report did get right, if anything. Well, I think that um, there's some very valuable contributions here with regard to some of the detailed chapters. And there's a lot of like very valuable research in there. And what it really brings to light to my mind is um, the extent to which the various different congregations hold some very, very valuable records and I think that now there will be and hopefully there will be a more concerted effort to place them in professional archival hands and place them in the public domain. But some of those very detailed chapters in the report contain some very, very valuable analysis and they are very thoroughly researched. I think there's a small bit of a disconnect between 
the executive summary and the chapters that follow. Can you explain what you mean by that? What what where do you think the disconnect is? Well, I think that there's always a, a when you're when you're um, engaged in an interdisciplinary study such as this. There is input here from paediatricians and uh, statisticians and historians and legal experts. Um, and it's what voice is loudest at the end of the day. And while we have some very detailed um, research in some of the subsequent ch- chapters, it's not captured in the executive summary, which gives us a very high level view of the very detailed research that went on elsewhere. And some things are not captured to my mind. I think perhaps the most uh, egregious uh, element of that is the, the weighting given to the written over the spoken word. And um, that's where, say, for example, in the confidential committee report, we have extensive uh, evidence from survivors that isn't actually in the executive summary. And, and that's where those voices got lost. And I, I think that that's uh, that's problematic. Yeah. And, and let's just move to that element of it, the oral history testimonies element, because the report says in a number of places that there was no evidence of certain things happening, even though those exact things were described in the testimonies. As a historian, how does that work? Did, like, Is that a correct way of doing it? Because there is no documentary, legal, I guess, criminal evidence if you're looking at that bar, but someone has told you something. Well, say, for example, some of the some of the testimony given in the, and I, I should also explain here as well that um, I, I find it kind of uh, upsetting that the interviews, um, uh, the recordings of the interviews were destroyed. And uh, what we have is again, the written word, the reports arising from those interviews being used as kind of a definitive thing, something that that's a bit more solid than the spoken word. and. To my mind, that's not the right way of doing history. If you're going to engage in oral histories, then you have to respect the value of oral history and weight it equally to uh, documents and to the written word because it's just as valid. And if you need to validate it with, say, uh, concrete evidence, then then you must do that. Um, but it has to be accorded the same degree of respect If you have to challenge it, well and good, but you can't disregard it offhand. And I think that that's something that has happened in the executive summary. Um, It contradicts some of the evidence that was provided by the survivors. That's what I was going to ask. Should oral history or can oral testimony be taken as evidence of something if there is no written down um, evidence of same? Oral history, to my mind, is something that should be engaged with wholeheartedly. Um, I use oral history uh, myself. Um, I think that there's some very valuable, it's a very valuable form of evidence of the past. But if you're going to challenge it, then you must challenge it robustly with the, the written sources. And you just can't, you can't say, oh, the written sources say one thing and then not do the research, bridge that with the oral histories. And in this instance, we've seen the oral testimonies um, kind of dismissed without that bridge in between, or, you know, at least to my mind, I haven't seen enough evidence of the bridging between both the documentary sources and the uh, survivors' testimonies. I haven't seen enough evidence of that challenge happening in a robust way. 
One of the things that Orla mentioned while she was running through the um, overview of the report was that while mother and baby homes weren't peculiarly an Irish phenomenon, there was this... uh, this setup in other countries, we did probably have the highest proportion of uh, women admitted to them when compared to the rest of the world. Does this report offer a definitive account of why that was or kind of frame the history of Ireland in a certain way? And does it do a good job of that? I think that there's there's a lot of merits to this report, um, but you really have to work hard to find uh, those answers, uh, Sinead. Um I think that uh, the 20th century was a period of confinement in Ireland. People were incarcerated in various different institutions. And I think that there probably could have been a little bit more discussion in very clear and uncertain terms about um, the relationship between church and state in Ireland. And instead, you have to work very hard to find that in the various different sections of the report. Uh, Like, for example, poverty is is a structural issue. And it's not problematized enough. And if we're going to be relying on church and state instruments to resolve matters like poverty, then there surely should be more discussion of that. Elements of class, morality and respectability are are, are not discussed enough either in this report, particularly in the executive summary. And I think that's what was most read by um, most people. And I think it caused a, a fair degree of upset. But I think that as the dust settles, as the weeks go on and the months go on, because it's going to take a long time to digest this report. It is uh, nearly 3000 pages long and um, we need time with it. But I think that uh, more of an effort could have been made to bridge those kind of very fundamental um, thematic problems with Ireland in the 20th century. That relationship between church and state cannot be just accepted as being and as something that's accepted, it needs to be problematized and, and pulled apart in ways that it wasn't in this report. We have a problem in Ireland whereby a, a lot of welfare issues were handed over to various different religious congregations and uh, in many respects, I suppose, uh, shut away from Irish society. And in particular, this this idea uh, surrounding you know, the management of morality in uh, the 20th century. Ireland is not kind of doesn't have an unusually high rate of single motherhood, but it has an extraordinary high rate of institutionalization of it kind of much later than other countries. And I think that speaks to the kind of conservative nature of Irish society as the 20th century progressed. Yeah, so the church, um, we got a, a good few apologies from various church figures over the last couple of weeks and obviously um, the state apology was made as well but the report itself um, the culpability it finds it says the the responsibility for the harsh treatment um, of women who gave birth outside marriage rested mainly with the fathers of that those children and their own immediate families although it was supported by contributed to and condoned by the institutions of the state and churches it did that was one of the headline things that it put responsibility in the main onto families from a historian's point of view, is there a problem with that or does does that bear out if you look back even, say, before the state and the church uh, would have been the, the main uh, beacons of power here? 
I, I think that's very problematic. It really is. I mean, uh, there are there are structural problems with poverty that extend beyond the family, that families have no control over whatsoever. I think that uh, one of the things that we really need to look at in the 20th century in particular is um, social class in Ireland in the 20th century. It's like in the main, what we're looking at here are poorer people. We're looking at poor families and we're looking at people who are trying to survive the 1930s we're, we have a, we're waging an economic war in the 1940s uh, late 1930s and 1940s we're talking about world war and a, a time when Ireland was actually quite poor so um, to say that it's just uh, families rejecting certain members is, is actually very disingenuous there are structural problems that are the problems of the state not of the family one of the other things that we wanted to talk about today was in the report, and it goes and it talks to the societal responsibility as well that the report points to consistently, is they mention a lack of national outcry about the infant mortality rates in the first half of the 20th century that the, the report outlines um, and that Orla gave us the stark numbers on. Is that your viewpoint from your studies as well, that there was a lack of national outcry? And if so, why was that? Again, I will come back to um, this kind of a disconnect between the executive summary and the rest of the report, because the the outcry is detailed in other chapters. Um, there was like infant mortality and maternal mortality are very sensitive uh, public health and wealth and national wealth indicators. And it's something that would have been reported on in the newspapers on a regular basis. And um, there are chapters that discuss you know, how uh, doctors were very dissatisfied with the very high rates of maternal and infant mortality in these institutions and associated with these institutions. And it depends as well, uh, you know, Sinead, what you mean by outcry. Um, if it's if it's measured in newspaper coverage, then yes, there's newspaper coverage of, of infant mortality. Uh, but in terms of where it's located, is that what they mean by lack of outcry? It's an unsighted uh, sentence, in fact. Yeah. And is that part of the issues that people like yourself and, and other academics are having with with the report? Some of the headline factors out of it aren't actually backed up within the report itself or within its citations. Yeah, there, there is an inconsistency in style here. And, uh, you know, some chapters are very heavily cited and it's fant- and very welcomely so, and um, it's evidence of significant uh, effort and thorough research, but that's not carried through throughout. And unfortunately, when you make statements uh, like broad brush general statements, you know, with regards to the culpability of of, of putative fathers or the morality or, or respectability of women, you you really do need to 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 put a citation in there. And, uh, the, you know, there, there are a couple of sentences that, that I think cause serious offence to people. And, and I'm not convinced that uh, they meant to, of course, they did not mean to cause offence, but they have caused offence. And in other chapters, then it's, it's actually, a, you know, matters regarding, say, prostitution, for example, are cited. Um, but uh, there's a lack of citation in the executive summary. Yeah, one of the chapters that I've seen criticism of um, from stakeholders is the chapter around discrimination because of disability and race. Have you taken a look at that chapter and, and what did you think about how it was written and the, the language used? 
like we know from the work of activists with regards to mixed race Irish and Minkair that um, that they were treated differently. And in the confidential committee report, there is evidence of, you know, mixed race Irish children being treated differently. And that's not um, that's not borne out in the executive summary. And, uh, you know, it's a a flattening of uh, of the experience of people who suffered, I think, a different degree of um, discrimination. And, and instead, what we're getting is that, you know, all unmarried mothers and their children experience discrimination. And, and, and that's not the case. Uh, there's a class conversation going on here as well. I think that poor mothers had a had a different experience. I think there's also evidence in subsequent chapters of intergenerational discrimination and disadvantage. So we there is an account of one man who spoke of his mother um, being institutionalized and um, and he himself having a lifetime of institutionalization. And then there's there, there's another report of like three generations of one family suffering as a result of single motherhood. So they had a very different experience of incarceration or institutionalization than, say, mothers who who and I, I quote her fell for the first time. So um, there, there is very definitely evidence in the subsequent chapters of discrimination. But in the executive summary, if we were to read that, just solely read that, then um, you would think that there was no discrimination. I, I think as well with regards to um, disability, there, is, uh, there were no advocacy voices there for those with disabilities in the uh, confidential committee report. So that's an absence, really, to be honest with you, Sinead. Was there anything else absent from the report that surprised you, something that you were expecting to be there and then when you opened it, it wasn't? Um, I would really have liked to have seen more of a discussion of the methods used to um, to arrive at the figures. I think the figures are uh, problematic in some respects. So you said uh, the figures of the infant mortality, the death rate? Yes, the infant and maternal mortality figures are very well-rounded and um, they're a partial view. Of course, the commission itself was very limited by its terms of reference, that it only looked initially at uh, 18 institutions. And uh, I think that's problematic. Uh, because we know in chapter two, there is a full list of all the institutions where mothers were incarcerated. The other thing is, is that with regards to infant mortality, uh, we only have 18 institutions. There are, you know, several more. So if we're going to be basing redress just on 18 institutions, then we're discriminating against people who were in other county homes. Only four of the county homes are included here. And with regards to the infant mortality, I, I don't think that those figures are complete. Uh, again, you know, the, the process of actually um, registering a death um, involves a conversation. So uh, oral testimony is then rendered into a, a registration. So somebody comes and explains so that this child died on such and such a date of certain symptoms. And the registrar very often did a kind of a, a translation of symptoms into a classification of death. And that's where there's an unequal weighting here of some oral testimonies over the written word and others. So where the GRO returns, which are often based on oral testimonies, are taken as gospel and not problematized at all, 
and then the voices of survivors um, don't receive equal weighting. I, I think that that's really problematic, Sinead. And um, I suppose a way, like a way of kind of rendering it in, into numbers here, um, there is over a thousand infant deaths where we don't know what the cause of death was, and it's uh, they're unclassified. And um, that should have been kind of questioned a little bit more at the time and questioned a little bit more in this report. And uh, it should have raised, uh, I think, uh, some more attention from the medical um, officers uh, associated with the institutions. Yeah, and just even from a media point of view, that 9,000 figure is actually just representative because, as you said, it's only the 18 homes. It's not every single home that was was in the country. No, and the maternal mortality figures are based on on fewer uh, again, you know, so um, we certainly do not have a, a complete impression of the the figures within those institutions, not to mention all the other institutions that have been uh, excluded from this uh, report. Yeah, so there's still obviously a long conversation to be had, as well as uh, action on all the all of the recommendations. Are there any other questions that this report doesn't answer that you feel need to be answered in the in the coming months and, and years? I, I think that this uh, report is the beginning, really, uh, Sinead. I think that we need a lot more research um, on things like boarding out, what happened to mothers and children once they left the institutions. And it is it is one of the recommendations of the commissioners that further research be conducted there. And, and that would be really welcome. I would also like to see a thorough examination of the admissions registers and a complete a completion of life courses. So if people were born in the institutions in the 1920s and 30s, what kind of uh, life expectancy did they have? Uh, what were their health outcomes? These are questions I think we need to answer. Absolutely. And I don't think this report is being assigned to, to history or the library just yet. Kira, thanks so much for coming into us on The Explainer and explaining um, all of that context to us. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thanks to Conal, Orla and Kira for all of their work on this episode. If you enjoyed this chat and learned something, we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find another show on the mother and baby homes, as well as the coronavirus and much more. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please, please, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen and share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.